10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Suffolk, this is The Late Show with Libby Isaac. Good evening. It is Tuesday the 9th of November. It is The Late Show and I am Libby Isaac. Tonight we are talking live with the Tom Sherrington. Get your teacher caps on. What do you want to ask him? Now is your time. Tune in and enjoy tonight's extra special Tom show. Live from Suffolk. This is The Late Show with Libby Isaac on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome for tonight's show. And as I mentioned in the introduction, tonight we are lucky enough to have the Tom Sherrington with us live. If there was ever a time to ask a question to an expert, I believe it's probably now. Um, Tom, as we all know, has a huge wealth of experience and he's ours this evening. Um, I absolutely want this show to be completely taken over. Hi, Tom. He's on the call. I love how organised you are. Um, um, by you, okay? Because I've got so many questions to ask Tom. I've got pages and pages I've been thinking about since, obviously, um, he said yes to coming on the show. But what makes us stand out as uh, a podcast, as anything to do with teaching is that we are absolutely live so please 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 use this opportunity to call in text in your questions to tom as we go we want to absolutely block up those airwaves for him so think about your questions you want to ask him you can put it in the text box you can put it out onto the twitter feed and we'll pick it up from there or if you're feeling really brave this evening and you get to win a Teachers Talk Radio mug, then please, please, please call in as well. What we're gonna do is we can go early to the news, um, which is uh, always good to hear. When we come back, I'm gonna do a tiny introduction and then we're gonna get Tom live with us because we wanna absolutely ask us, ask him as many of our questions as we can. So I'll be back in one second. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. From 2025 in Wales, Pupils will study for one Integrated Science Award, which will be worth two GCSEs rather than separate subjects. Qualifications Wales said that the new GCSE will include key aspects of biology, chemistry and physics and make it clear how they will link to each other. Dr Laurie Main Waring, Academic Team Lead in Biomedical Sciences at Cardiff Metropolitan University said, I worry about the message combining these three GCSEs together will give pupils. This dumbing down, if you like, or this convergence of science, what does that tell our pupils about science? 
that it's maybe not as important as it should be. The one thing we have learned over the past 20 months is that science is extremely important. Without scientists all over the world, we wouldn't have had an understanding of COVID at all, and we wouldn't have a vaccine. Qualifications Wales said it was still open to the possibility of developing other Made for Wales qualifications to sit alongside the new GCSE Science qualification. In the week before half term, more than 3,400 children across Berkshire were absent as a result of COVID-19. Officers from West Berkshire Council met with head teachers on Friday and a spokesperson said, We are recommending a number of protective measures that schools could put in place going forward to reduce the risk of transmission within educational settings across the district. This includes the wearing of face coverings in certain circumstances, reducing contact and mixing between year groups where possible, and the use of testing. Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of School Leaders Union NAHT, said staff absences linked to COVID-19 was a particular concern. He added, We know schools are finding it increasingly hard to cover staff absence and in many cases, they simply cannot afford the cost of so many supply teachers. At the very least, the government needs to re-establish the workforce fund that it abandoned last autumn. Without this crucial support, there is a real risk that schools will struggle to keep all classes open as we move into the winter months. Robin Walker, schools minister, said the country was at a pivotal point where testing and vaccination were vital to fighting the virus and protecting face-to-face -face education. This has been your daily education news briefing. Fantastic. Always good to hear those headlines for education. So tonight we have Tom with us um, and we're going to be talking homework, we're going to be talking interventions, high expectations, well-being and absolutely anything that you want to bring to the show or to the table. Now when I first asked Tom to be on the show one of the things I usually do to the guests that come on for me is I will send a bit of an overview, um, just some ideas or some of the questions that I might ask. Tom absolutely didn't want that he wanted to do it off the hoof um, and I think that's absolutely brilliant scares me to death but absolutely brilliant um, so who knows what's going to happen this evening but I'm very excited for it um, as a teacher what was your first introduction to Tom so mine was actually through his teacher head blog that he did and this was a, a quite a long time ago I was leading the teaching and learning within within the school that I was working at and my head teacher sent this to me and said right Libby I want you to do a blog for our staff every single week um, absolutely petrified me um, I had no confidence in those days uh, I didn't really understand the whole Twitter educational scene so to speak um, and I must admit Tom's blogs completely saved me um, Obviously, I personalised them um, for the staff in front of me, but they absolutely helped me um, with sort of starting off that teaching and learning, that research, that looking at some of those common themes and things. And 
I definitely got 100% better with them as time went on, but I would have been completely lost without them. And for me, Tom himself is just incredibly relatable with what he talks about. Um, Also really easy to understand. And I don't know about you, but I think sometimes educational research completely blows my mind. It can be really complex. It can be really complicated. But when you look or read Tom's articles, his research, his books, um, they're so relatable. And they're relatable for the actual classroom, for classroom practice. And that can be right from an ECT all the way to an experienced, long-running teacher. So, you know, having those exceptional ideas and concepts um, given to you where you you can access them and they are absolutely accessible is definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to get Tom on to Teachers Talk Radio, because um, what a brilliant evening we're going to have of free CPD. So what we're going to do without further ado is we're going to get Tom on the show and um, we're going to start talking to him and as I've said before if you've got a question be brave tonight and ring in for it that'd be absolutely brilliant to hear from you hello Tom can you hear me yeah can you hear me yes we can loud and clear fantastic oh, it's always good to know when the when the, the technology goes right isn't it <laughs> yeah I'm just sitting here with my headphones on and um, hoping you can hear me all right that's good absolutely hear you uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show for us this evening no it's my pleasure i think it's brilliant that you do this and uh, i'm honored to be part of it oh that's very kind very kind indeed so just just for the listeners out there can you just give us a little bit of background um you know where where you came from what you're doing now etc just uh, just so that we all know where we're at with you Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> the quick version. Yeah, just, just, but, just a quick bit. Yeah. Well, I was, I was a teacher for, you know, 30 odd years. I, I started teaching in, I got my first job in 1987. So um, I worked in a lot of schools and was a physics and maths teacher. And then I went, went through being a deputy head and um, went abroad for a bit. And then mm-hmm. I was a head teacher in a couple of schools in the UK. But for nearly five years now, coming up for five years in January, I've been kind of a consultant working with schools and writing books and stuff and I just it's it's been exciting I, I just every every week I'm in different schools or colleges yeah observing lessons talking to teachers talking to school leaders and doing training days that kind of stuff and I love it I get to travel all over the place and talk to teachers everywhere so I, I enjoy all of that that's what so what, that's what I'm doing and I've written some books along the way and, and they've helped kind just of a few yeah spread the word <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I enjoy my life at the moment. I, I enjoy it, but it, it kind of, you know, it, it all started off by being a physics teacher. Brilliant. Um, and I, that's what Teachers Talk Radio is. It's for everybody in that classroom as well, isn't it? So it's really good, really good to hear from you this evening. So um, I don't know if you've ever been on before to the Teachers Talk Radio, but I'm hoping we might get some live um, callers in. We might get some texts and we'll just we'll we'll ask you the questions as they come and uh, we'll go with it. And I'll, I'll be playing a few adverts as well to give you a bit of a, a bit of a break in between. That's fantastic. I, I, I did one show with Kate Jones a while yes. ago, but um, yeah, I, I'd be interested to see what, what people say. Brilliant. Okay. Um, so I, I think it'd be absolutely perfect to start off by asking, what was your inspiration or your passion back in the early days to actually become that teacher? Uh, well, I, I think I did it because <laughs> I, I, I know it's not going to be some great sort of heartwarming story here. I mean, I didn't know what to do and um, teaching was something which I thought would be interesting to try. Yeah. And um, 
I did it because there was a a bursary available for physics teachers to start mm-hmm. to do PGC, and I enjoyed being a. I, I just wanted to carry on being a student for a while, so I thought I'd try it. But when I got to do it, when I actually did teach on my teacher training, and and as far as I, I really enjoyed it. So I, at that point, I thought, no, this is something I, I could I could do um, as a career. But I I kind of just te- you know dip my toe into it, thinking, well, I'll do it for a while and see what happens. But I I, I really did enjoy it. I, I was under some sort of pressure to go into some academic field you know with a degree in physics yeah. and do something and so uh, at that time it, it didn't seem like the most obvious thing a, a physics graduate would go into but I'm really glad I did. Well like Portia niece who's one of the listeners right now said that's the same for me and actually for, for me personally as well I didn't I didn't go into it for some I don't know altruistic reason I mean, even we're all altruistic for teachers aren't we but I didn't I didn't have a a burning urge to be a teacher throughout the, my whole sort of um, childhood. I I did it because I sort of fell into it, and I absolutely, absolutely love every second of it. Even now, um, after working through the ranks and things like that, I still absolutely thrive when I'm in that classroom with the students in front of me. So, um, yeah. So I suppose it's quite quite similar, I suppose. Um, so one one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, um, you you publish. I, I thought this probably be quite a good place to start so you published a blog or an article in September about high expectations in the classroom and it's what connected us because I I um, shared it and then I wrote a comment on it and I said oh it'd be wonderful to get you on the show and straight away you said yes absolutely and I was like oh brilliant um, that worked really well for me um, so just for for the teachers out there and there's been quite a bit on this um, on Twitter anyway um, what in your opinion does high expectations look like for a teacher and for a student within a classroom? Well, it's, it, it comes into nearly everything you do. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's part of, you, you, it applies to sort of some early years right up to, you know, teaching A-level. or you, You're thinking what, everything you ask students to do, you expect them to do it well and and sort of properly and thoroughly and, there's a kind of you know aiming for excellence, and it mm. it could be, it could be everything from expecting students to have all their equipment, to be on time, to to get in and started in a lesson really crisply and and quickly and promptly with some energy, and it could be how how well they answer a question. So expectations can be about when you answer a question, you try to think of a really full answer rather than just grunting out kind of half formed answer. It could be how you, how you present your work everything you do really you can sort of think of a mediocre version of it and an excellent version of it and high expectations means i'm expecting you to do the excellent version and i think teachers who get that kind of have this kind of give this sort of impression of kind of it's not about it's not about because unless you do this i'm going to be cross or there'll be a detention or there's a consequence it's just they communicate it through this is what I expect from you, and I know you can do it. So come on, do your homework, be have your stuff, be on time, be enthusiastic, give me full answers. And you have this sort of energy and expectation, which means that when students don't quite meet it, you say, yeah, well, okay, well, come on, better than that. Let's do it better. Yeah. And uh, you're demanding, you're demanding of students in a way which makes them feel, oh, my teacher really believes in me, and therefore the, stu- the students kind of rise to it. 
That's what I think it's about. It's about that communicating a sense of belief. And if you kind of accept a student's, you know, sloppy homework, being late, not having their stuff, giving a half-formed answer, and you just kind of allow it, allow it, allow it, it kind of gives this impression of mediocrity, but also not being that bothered. And and I think botheredness is one of the phrases I, I inject in the blog. It talks about that feeling of just being that bit more bothered. Exactly. I actually do care. I do care about it. And you're, and, and I'm going to let you know that I care about it. And I think I think you use the quote, you establish what you establish in that blog as well. And I think that's that's so important for staff because I think high expectations are modelled by the staff. And if the staff aren't modelling those high expectations, then, and then the culture of the school is completely lost. Totally. I mean, and that's a Bill Rogers kind of classic, you know, and he, he talks about that in relation to behaviour and whether you want children to be, you know, you have sort of teachers who do things like, Okay, everybody, let's have, let's work in silence. But actually, they just go shh, 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 quiet, shushing, shushing. And actually, when you listen, it's not silent. Mm. There's lots, of, and, and the teachers going, "Well done, guys, that's great." But actually, what they really meant was just talk a little bit less noisily than you were before. But it wasn't. They didn't really mean silence. And so, they established that when they say silence, they actually mean not too noisy. And that's what the students then believe. That's what it means. And, that, and that's that, the expectation set, isn't it? Yeah, and that's what establish what you establish kind of means. And I feel like sometimes teachers sort of re- receive this as a kind of critique. Like, but I, I try to sort of frame it as a, an empowerment thing. Like, it's in your hands. You, you actually could have way higher standards than you even believe if you just b- believe that you can get them by con- by insisting on them. And sometimes people say, "Oh, my students can't do it, and my students won't do that." And I just say, "Well." Listen to what you're saying there. You're the reason why they can't is because actually you don't believe they can. <laughs> you're, mm. you're you're presenting a barrier there, which is you don't believe it's possible, so you're not even expecting it. So I feel like there's a kind of you have to tussle this out with yourself and think, oh my gosh, have I have I already established have I already limited my own horizons here through being slightly battered down by you know, like some teachers say things like, Oh well, they never they just don't do the homework. You think, okay, so, and it becomes this thing like, what's the point because it never gets done? And you have to sort of fight your own negativity sometimes to think, I'm going to flip this round and big it up when it's done and build a positive culture around it. And I, I just think it, it, sometimes people do need to lift their horizons and see that it's more possible than the reality seems to suggest at the Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. I think I think it's now it's now beginning to happen. So we're getting some questions through on the on the live on the live chat, which is fantastic. So Danny Burton has um, asked, "Hello, Danny," um, said that he wants to be a primary. He wants to be a teacher since he was a primary school. That's absolutely brilliant to hear. But he's also said, "Tom, how do you motivate students with low aspirations, particularly males?" Uh, my honest feeling about about motivation is that, in, in terms of what you can control, is that uh, it's about making students feel successful. Mm. So uh, I I think you can invest time in in talking about long term goals and what you you know and that kind of goal setting. But I, I think the thing you can manage day to day is here's, I'm going to teach you something and I'm going to feel good about learning it. And motivation comes through success. It's like if if you imagine doing something which you initially find hard. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of something which I think I would find incredibly hard to do like say 
sing dance really well. <laughs> I was going to say skipping I, or whistling. Yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> my, my feeling is that I'd be absolutely rubbish at dancing. And if if after a couple of goes, I just felt sort of humiliated by the whole thing and I had to do it in front of other people. And it was just excruciating. My motivation to carry on would be low. Yeah. I, the, the, the motivation to, to continue would be through feeling that I had achieved something like I'd done better than I'd done before or it's actually the effort is worth it. And I, and I, I actually think that's what it comes down to more than anything is it's not sort of spurious, extraneous, you know, in extrinsic rewards. It's making students feel that they know stuff. So sometimes that means you have to go a bit further back to the basics of what they can and can't do and say, okay, what can you do? Right, let's see if you can do that a bit better then. And let's add a bit more to that and let's add a bit more to that. But you don't just keep thrashing them with a sense of failure. And I think once students see that effort was worth paying, worth investing, then they start to do that. And and then, yeah, and, and, and I think part of that is normalizing it. So not just making it kind of habitual um, that you just sort of do a certain amount of work and effort. And it's it's not a choice. It's like it's taking the choice out of it. It's just what you do, you know, it's just normalized. It's a routine. And and I think peer culture is a part of that. So, mm. for example, when, when when teachers are struggling with students who don't do their homework, I think the worst thing you can do is keep banging on about all the students who don't do their homework. Because if you think that, well, no one else seems to do it, so there's no point me doing it, it, it just reinforces that. But if you just keep if you just keep on saying, wow, look at what I've got, these few students have done some yeah. amazing work. That's normal. And you, you start sort of making it feel like the norm is people do their homework, they work hard, they've done they've put some effort in. You you just keep bigging students up for what they've done well. It creates a positive spiral that starts creating that. I was gonna I was gonna ask you a question about positive framing, which is um I suppose what, what you mentioned there as well, where you 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 point out and you praise those that are actually doing it rather than those that are not doing it in the classroom. Yeah, I think positive, there's a few things. There's, there's, there's so much packed into this. So if you look at the sort of the Bill Rogers toolkit, one of them is um, the po- positive framing. And uh, for me, that's, this was a bit of a game changer for me. Sort of in the, in the late 90s, I was working in, um, or mid 90s, I was working in a comprehensive school in London where I was feeling, behave, I was finding behavior management properly hard. And I think I was a form tutor. I think I was an absolutely rubbish form tutor. Yeah. <laughs> I, for a few years, I, because every, every day they'd have their kind of day, they, they had this sort of daily report sheet. And it was just Oh, I, like, I was absolutely rubbish at the <laughs> beginning as well. So it's like <laughs> every day you'd see this sort of, this they'd had this another attritional day where they were, the teachers were just exasperated. And so was I, and I'd be sort of moaning at them and, and I could sense it as they were coming into my form room every day, they were just waiting for the, the bollocking I was going to give them again. And, it's like, <laughs> and I was just thinking, this is, this is negative. I, I'm, they're expecting it. I'm expecting it. So and then I watched these Bill Rogers videos and I was thinking, oh my gosh, why have I never seen this before? And I really was like positive framing. So you, instead, of mm. saying, instead of saying, stop doing that, do stop doing this, you say, guys, okay, what I need you, what I need from you is this. I need everyone. Yeah, and look- explain why as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I need you looking and listening. I need you doing this. That's fantastic. I need you walking sensibly down the corridor. I need everyone with their pen, pencil, and ruler. Brilliant. Thank you for doing that. I need everyone. It's like you're just talking about what you want and what you need, and you and and then and then once you never say anything like stop, stop doing that, and the, the negative is 
and I thought, gosh, this feels a bit weird to talk like this, but uh, I found myself being like Bill Rogers saying, can everyone looking and listening this way, th- look, looking, thanks, thanks, guys, thank you, and saying thank you <laughs> about 100 times a lesson. And it works, a dream. I thought, oh, my God, it's not just a gimmick. It actually works. Thanks, guys. Thank you for everybody. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for looking that brilliant. Thank you. And wow, it game total game changer. And for me, that is a, a technique, which is, you know, it sounds like a bit naff on paper. You think, really? Does that work? Yeah, it does. Work, I think right? so. I've seen it in action, actually. And I've I've done it myself. Um and I had to train myself to not it's not it's not a natural thing, I suppose, unless it's natural for you. Um, and I had to practice at it. And then it completely changed how that class responded to me. Yeah, totally. I, I, I can see with that. And so once you, and then, you know, um, I, I realized it was, you know, sometimes teachers walk in, kids walk into my lesson and they look at me and they go, are you in a good mood or a bad mood, sir? <laughs> you can go, oh, no, like that's kind of how they see me, you know, <laughs> totally inconsistent. And I think, well, God, that's not really good, is it? Like I'm projecting my mood swings onto my teenage students. No wonder they're a bit wary. And you have to think, well, that's that's not a healthy frame of mind for me or them. So let's sort sort that out. And you, you do realise you're part of the issue then. Like it's 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 obviously you'd love them to just walk in and be be nice and beautiful to you. But this is this is for students that you see all the time. I think mm. there are some expectations you are entitled to have of a class, which are to do with just discipline but i think that when you when you get to know a class over time you have to sustain that through a, a some kind of rapport and the other thing is that is the bill rogers is the is the dot in the in the square kind of a, a metaphor which is when you see a dot in a square of blank square you, it's hard to ignore it like there it is nagging at you and it's you, you're looking for the pristine square of emptiness of sort of like universal conformity but then the little imperfections are sticking out at you. And it's so hard to avoid just focusing on that. So the three students who are late take up all your time because you talk to them. Or the five students out of mm. 30 that didn't do their homework, they listen to you nag at them. But actually, everyone else was on time. Everyone else did their homework. Everyone yeah. else was looking and listening. So you big them up first and make that the main main focus of what you talk about. And then that changes the whole spirit of what's happening and then the other students go oh i wish i was with them and instead of getting negative attention for doing stuff wrong they actually don't get any attention at all so you it, it, it creates a sort of positive sweep and I, again i found that actually works <laughs> you know? no, and, and if anybody if anybody's out there who you know has has got that class that they dread or they've got that two time every single day that is a little bit like you you've mentioned then it's there's such simple techniques that you can use to to change their behavior almost instantly just by the way that you respond to them i think we've got a live caller tom i'm very excited this doesn't happen that often <laughs> um, let's go for it let's hear oh, it should we go for it okay um and i am very aware that nadine's asked a question as well about high expectations so let's go to the live caller first then we'll come back to nadine if that's okay so i do believe we've got is it mr Delator on the line. Hi, Libby. Hi, Tom. Yes. Oh, hello. How are you? Right. Brilliant. Thanks so much for calling in. I think you. I think you win a mug for calling in live. Yay! I I know. (laughs) I think if you um if you are brilliant, Nadine says it's answered. Um, if um I'll organise how to do that at another point. But if you're happy to ask Tom your question, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Yes. Thank you. Hi, Tom. I just would like to ask your thoughts on the use of humour in 
classroom lessons and if you think it has an appropriate place in the classroom that's a good question yes yeah, a really good question mm. I, I i do think it has a place i think um I, I i always think that teachers should try to be themselves you know and you should express yourself and i saw a lesson yes yes yesterday day before yesterday uh, well that, that can't be true because it's tuesday so no it was all it was just last less school I was in it was in Thursday last week actually where a teacher was you know it, ha having quite a bit of you call it banter almost with the class and it was a sort of and I was thinking I was actually thinking about it I was who's doing it and I, and I could see that you know it had it had a sort of rapport building effect and it created a sort of dynamic and it was quite a hard working lesson really but it was there was a kind of humor in in the way that he responded to a couple of their answers but it was it had a sort of trust, and then he could he could you know he could he is in control of that. So I think you need to manage it. I I, I think if you, I have seen teachers disrupt their own lessons. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> everyone was working hard and they got a bit bored and started sort of you know bantering. And I thought, no 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 no, why have you done that? You've just got them working hard. You've just literally been the disruptor of your own class. Why would you do that? So I think you have to be careful of, of when and when and making sure the students understand the humour, that it's not personal and so on. Mm. But if, 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 you have, if anyone, I think he, and obviously there's a context. But yeah, I, I think humour is part of, of being human, isn't it? It's part of how we communicate ideas. And um, if you ever feel that you're inhibiting your, be, your, your, sort of, your, your identity as a person because you feel that there's a, a need for a level of formality, I think there's probably something's wrong there you know you, you need to be able to be yourself and if that involves being humorous i think then that's part of it but it has to be with purpose it's to do with building relationship and it's got to be at a level where it doesn't impede the flow of you know serious information that you're trying to communicate in a lesson i mean i don't know if I answer the question but <laughs> sorry well, Porsche's just texted in and said excellent point on my sing at students love yeah. that <laughs> I, mean, um, I, I, think, I, I cringe at some of the things i used to do i mean <laughs> It makes me laugh, actually. I, I literally had, like, a, a, um, a you know, I, I've had various emails and stuff over the years from people who I used to teach. And, and somebody recently r reminded me that I, I taught them for A-level um, about 20 years ago. And, and he said, we used to love it when you did those handstands <laughs> and, uh, on, and on the table. And I was thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> You're very and energetic, I, I, Tom. Well, I do have this. I do. I have. I, I can do a type of handstand where you put, kind of put your knees on your elbows. It's not like putting your hands up in the air, but it's. Um, and I think I'm, that's just embarrassing that I did that on the table. <laughs> but anyway, clearly it it, it it's um, uh, it, it amused them and they remembered it. But and they did they did well. But um, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody that you kind of go that far. But I, I was, <laughs> so I think I think literally if if someone re think. Uh, Imagine this. Imagine someone reports back to you 10 years later something you said or did in a lesson and you, you absolutely cringe that you did that. Then it's probably a bad idea. <laughs> oh, I think it's memorable. And I think, I think um, I, Portia said it gets them to tuck their shirts in. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think, I think, oh, I don't know. Let's ask, let's ask Miss Della Tour who's on the line. So uh, do you use humour in your lesson? I mean, I, I have been known to use a little bit of humour here and there in my lessons. Um, namely, singing is actually one of them, funny enough. Um, <laughs> often I get told not to. Um, but yes, I found with the, the more challenging kids, it works a lot, e it's, it's a lot easier to, to get to the level because a lot of the time they, 
with uh, the things they'd say to try and derail a lesson by flipping it into sort of a joke or having a laugh with them about it um, keeps the lesson more on track than letting them derail it by use the use of humour. Um, and I think that that comes down to relationships then as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think I think that's a good point. Like, de, you know, derail allowing students to derail rather than you, and, and humour can diffuse things. But I think you, you have to just keep things in perspective. Like, it's it's sort of um, it's got to be about them, not so much about you. So, so a couple of times I've been in lessons where a teacher, I feel like this is kind of. I, mean, I guess this is what the sort of thing I I I did probably too much at some point at a certain point was trying to amuse myself rather than actually teach you know you sort of you just getting through the day and you're kind of you're the jokes are for yourself you know your own entertainment not really for the students and you think okay it's a probably a bit that's not really that appropriate to be you know what I mean I think who, who's who's having the fun is it you or them and if it's you and not them then it's probably yeah not, not it's gone, gone too far and I think sarcasm as well it's a very sort of hard line especially with SEN students yeah, gosh, you have to be so careful with that. I mean, yeah. I think that's that's when you think, no, 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 and and, and anything which, you know, you, there there are definite lines there. I mean, I don't, you know, turn turn a question about humour into something too serious, but I do think there are lines, and you have to be the adult in the room. You've got to be careful about um, anything which makes somebody feel uncomfortable or or whatever, and you know, so you 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 find those limits, I suppose, but. You know, you do have to be sensitive about about children and, and the way they perceive certain messages. I think so. Um, is it Mr. Be- Mr. Delatour? Did you want to ask Tom anything else, or is that answered your question? No, that has. Thank you ever so much. Oh, thanks for calling in. It's made my yeah, evening. That has. Um, <laughs> did you want? Uh, I don't know how to do it. I'm, I suppose uh, Tom Rogers, if he's listening, he can advise perhaps in the text how how we'd get your mug to you. But we will. If you stay on the show, we'll definitely we'll definitely organise that for you. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you again. All sir. right. Have a nice evening. You too. Thanks. How exciting, Tom. Um, so um, I think Nadine says that we've already answered her question when she was talking about live ex- um, high expectations, etc. cetera. Um, so I suppose um, I'm going to move on a little bit with, with my questions. Um, you did a, um, a, a blog not, not too long ago as well about interventions. Um, and it just it really made me think personally, because as a middle leader and as a senior leader, I've been asked and as the head of school, actually, I've been asked a variety of times to measure the impact of certain interventions. Um, And I really liked your blog because, um, well, you said that actually can't we just teach better rather than talking, you know, going through hoops with certain interventions, especially with year 11. Can you just talk to me a little bit about your opinion when it comes to interventions? Yeah, I I think that the the, the focus of that blog was really about the, the sort of this thing of chasing sort of subgroups. So I, I think I would I, I need to be careful. Like it's not like like for example today I was talking to a Senko, yeah, talking about um, you know a specific reading program and the impact that it has. And yeah, you, there are some students who, for example, arrive at secondary school and still can't decode these. Abs- you know, absolutely, yeah. And or or, or they have, can't infer. They can decode the words, but they find reading for inference really hard. And so the there are programs you can do. So there are some specific, very specific uh, reading interventions uh, which which can be powerful. <laughs> but 
when you've got sort of, you know, the, the data suggests that pupil premium boys in year eight uh, with low prior attainment uh, are underachieving, you know, do you get those students into a room and do a thing? I'd say no. You, well, you just, yes. You highlight the fact that there are some students who are doing less well. And the reason will be is because if you analyse what's happening in lessons, the way when teachers are asking them questions or setting tasks or modelling and scaffolding or doing retrieval practice or whatever, those students are at the margins of the success of those tasks. So they're, they're probably less involved in the questioning, giving less extended verbal answers, not closing the gap when they do a retrieval practice thing. They've probably forgotten stuff, but we don't then repeat it so that they're, now they do, they know it, and so on. When you model something for them to do in writing, they're probably the way they emulate that is less successful than other people. So everything you do, is, is they, they, they are the ones who um, are doing you know, are succeeding the least. So the way to, to, to address their needs is to think about how to do those strategies better so that those students succeed from them every day, every lesson, all the time, in the time you've already got with them. Not thinking, right, let me put in an extra bit of time after school to address their needs separately. When there's so much mileage in this, the, the day-to-day delivery to improve. And I, and I see that happen all the time. It's easy to sit in the back of a lesson and watch, but Every lesson I watch, pretty much, you see opportunities where some students could have learned more or been more, have their confidence built if there'd been certain things had happened. And I just see that a lot. So that's the main message is probably mm. if you just focus on how do I make my normal lessons that bit more watertight in terms of the least successful students doing well, you're going to cover off a lot of those gaps way more successfully than if you scoop those students up and, and try to do something extra with them on a sort of half an hour a week or whatever. You know, it's, it's just... And there's lots of other things, which is that those students that you select might not be the exact right ones. You know, it's... You know, you, you just can't really always predict that the type of subgroup of students that you've identified is actually the right group of people for the intervention. And I feel like sometimes you do an intervention for the sake of a piece of paper um, or, you know, to submit your report that you've got to submit it to. And that's that's not the point of them. Um, I've definitely in the past we've had I've had students stay behind because they're they're a certain group because of data and a piece of paper. <laughs> and it's just it's just it's a lot of effort for for me. And I don't think they're getting much out of it than you know, all no. the ones that aren't invited, they're like, oh, why can't I come, for example? Like, it, That's true. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I genuinely speak, speaking, I mean, I think that there's, you know, if, you, if you've had eight mediocre maths lessons in a fortnight, having a nine mediocre maths lessons isn't going to help. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... Exactly. You're much, and I'm not saying that, that, that students, it's not because of mediocre lessons per se, but it's like, if I can make those eight lessons better next fortnight, that might be better than me worrying about having a ninth one, which, I, you know what I mean? It's like, it's the, it's the mainstay, it's the core practice, which is the, the, the main place that children do their learning. And I think if we can put all our effort into thinking about that, slightly better lessons all the time is a better way to spend your energy than yeah. trying to sort of constantly chase things. And, you know, you see, and, and what, there are some... Things that start happening. I mean, I've I've had this exact conversation and experience from lots of school leaders where 
when students know there's a kind of catch-up club or an Easter revision or they'll defer to it. I literally have had this ex experience with students who know there's a big Easter revision school before GCSEs. Mm -hmm. And they just think, oh, I'll wait till then. To do my revision, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had with that, all, yeah. With all these teachers, they're giving up their time in their holidays for students who basically haven't revised up to that point because they were waiting for them. And, and that, that's obviously counterproductive. I think we've got another live caller. Um, that's two. This, this is ever so exciting, Tom. So we'll, we'll go to Tom. I think if anybody is live calling, because I don't really know how to get the mugs to you at the moment, so I'll ask Tom that, and you need to leave at one point. Just if you follow me on Twitter, you can DM me, and then I'll, I'll contact you that way. So if you if you need your mug and you need to get details, but you need to leave now, then please just DM me and we'll go from there. Right, let's find out. I think it's Portia Nice is on the line. Hello, Paul. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, wonderful. I can hear you. Brilliant. Um, have you got a question for Tom? Yeah, I'm not going to sing. Don't worry, Tom. Um, oh, so there's so much kind of theory and research around teaching. And I've found that in recent years, different schools adhere to different theories and different um, models within lessons. Which do you think is the most effective and why? Well, of, of theories... <laughs> In terms of um, uh, in terms of lessons, um, so whether it's uh, Rosen's Rosen shines or um, you know today I've had about um, magenta, there's 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 lots coming at you. And which do you think is the most effective? Magenta, I haven't heard of that. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Is that a person? Is that a person or a scheme or what is? That? Um, yeah, um, yeah, it is. Um, we've only found out about it today. It's, it's almost like um, getting students to think hard, uh, quite a difficult concepts and about connect and um, pushing them to think harder in lessons and really challenging them in lessons. What's it called? I'm gonna look it up on my phone as we're doing this. What's it called? Uh, it's called the magenta principle um let me have a look yes yeah, so yeah i've only i've only found out about it today so it's <laughs> it's quite new and yeah i i actually think um well i mean i i i think there are lots of different um aspects of of of, of theories and mm. i suppose for me that the, um, the thing which underlines everything is the kind of the basic model of cognitive science which which mm doesn't belong to any individual but is well explained by someone like dan willingham so if you want okay. a, 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 a basis for understanding teaching i would say that the, the the way that dan willingham explains memory and the model of learning that's related mm -hmm. to sort of work, working memory long-term memory and the need to engage in retrieval practice and so on in his explaining his book why don't students like school i i, I would say that's probably the, the one model i'd go to to say that model of learning explains a lot. Oh, I'm getting a big buzz on my phone. Um, it explains a lot of things. And then mm. you could say that that's cognitive load theory. You know, maybe that some people would say that what Dan Willingham is referring to is cognitive load theory. But it, to me, it's just the architecture of memory. And, and then when you look at something like Rosenstein's principles, everything he says built essentially relates to that model. So to do with getting students... Yeah to check to practice things getting students to uh get engaged in retrieval practice daily review monthly review questioning and checking for understanding all those techniques and, and ideas mm. are based on the idea of students 
building a model for learning a schema for an idea mm. uh, in their head and you've got to find out how that's going so that you can respond and that and, and that links to the idea of formative assessment so i suppose the other thing alongside willingham is dylan william and his ideas about formative assessment checking i think i think it's porsche i think it's your connection okay. that's making that noise so okay um, don't worry check check checking students knowledge learning as they're going through as you're going through a lesson formatively so i think those those two ideas formative assessment is really the kind of engine room of a good classroom oh, gosh. <laughs> it's like we're having like a sound i'm not, I'm not sure what's happening now but um, sound effects, yeah. i hope that answers your question portia Yes, thank you. If you can hear me, yeah, we can yeah. hear you. Don't worry. It's just it's quite a poor connection, but we we absolutely heard your question, and thank you so much. For no, and I appreciate I that. Just, thank you, thank you. I just looked up the Magenta Principles, and it's um, I don't know, uh, it's it's something from Mike Hughes in education, and it's an umbrella phrase that refers to a philosophy and an approach to teaching based upon the premise that learning should be both exciting and engaging. So it's exactly what, what Tom was saying. There's loads there's loads of things out there, but actually I think the idea of, of talking through it through Dylan William and um, assessment, that's that that could be the core for it all because there is so much out there, isn't there? There is. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I and I think I think there's um a risk in so for example, I mean I even had this sort of comment yesterday Rosenstein is is one of many cognitive scientists, but he just had the idea of trying to, you know, sort of summarise quite a lot of ideas into a neat document. So that this has become a set of principles which captures the essence of a, a lot of basic practices that teachers do all the time. Yeah, but absolutely. Because, but in a way, you could say, well, none of those things were. He didn't invent any of those things, or. Um, and you know, you could think, well, someone else could have come up with a similar list, and of course they could. So Lovely. Just, there's no reason why one particular set of ideas becomes the, the thing that people refer to. It's just <laughs> random, really. But I, I do think when you come down to it, formative assessment and thinking about memory and uh, schema building are underpin pretty much nearly everything that happens in classrooms, I would argue. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for calling in, Portia. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I say, if you DM me some thank details, you. then I'll get you a mug. Oh, thank you. So oh, thanks thank so you. much. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was Portia's line that was making that noise. Um, but another really really interesting question, and obviously these questions are coming from you know. Oh, we got another caller. This is so exciting. Uh, these are questions coming from from teachers who you know who are listening and reading you at the moment so I, I think it's fascinating doing a live show like this with you Tom I think it's working quite well this evening um I think what we'll do if um I think is it Melita yeah it is oh wonderful um Tom are you okay to take a question from Melita and then we'll go to an ad break yeah that sounds great brilliant okay um thank you so much for calling in Melita Hi Tom, hi Libby. Um, this is just a really quick question. So I'm a science teacher at the moment and I really, really struggle with the fact that students don't choose to do science and they don't have any, they don't feel the need to want to do it sometimes. But we're put under the same pressure from SLT that they have to pass like in English and maths and we seem to be as important as that by SLT but it's not the buy-in that we get from the students and as you were a science teacher I just thought I'd ask you how you dealt with that. <laughs> It's an, 
I actually think it's funny, it swings and roundabouts, because I feel like, you know, if you're in an in a option subject, although, um, you know, you have a sort of horrible process having to sort of sell your subject to students when they choose their options, and, and when you're a science teacher, you don't have to do that. So the fact that science is a core subject, I would say, is, 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 a, is a good thing, because it means it's sort of, it's embedded. And, and even so, for example, today I've been talking to uh, teachers about sustainability and how, how that's come through. Know, the COP conference and the, the fact that everyone needs to learn science and every, every, means that you, you can say, well, this is knowledge that every child should gain through the science curriculum. And I think that's fantastic. So I, I, the, way I, the way I do it is think about, uh, you know, students' engagement is not to make it a choice um, and not to sort of oversell the subject through sort of spurious motivational things, but let the subject speak for itself and model the intrinsic in, interest in it. So I, I, my, 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 I really believe this, that you, that you have to trust the subject and you have to trust the fact that students may not love it instantly, but that, that's okay. You just let them come to it. So, for, so for example, you, you, what's the purpose of teaching something like um, the rocks cycle? You might think, oh, that sounds really dry, but it's not dry because the rocks explain how we, how we know how old the earth is, which tells us how we know how, you know, that's how, that's that's about that links to sort of ideas about life on the planet in the middle of the universe and um dinosaurs became extinct and how do we know because we find them fossilized in, and they died 65 million years ago and that and leads to ideas about evolution through the fossil record and all these sort of you just get enthusiastic about the subject yeah i mean i going, think if, if they're saying i'm bored i'm bored i'm bored you go well you kind of don't listen to that. You just keep on teaching them the stuff. And one day they'll realise that it's interesting and relevant to them. I mean, it's been really useful in COVID. That's really helped with students understanding the importance because you've had like a real life science lesson going on at class. But yeah, it's just, it's just a difficult, it's just difficult sometimes with apathy of students and how you motivate them forward. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I think, I mean, I, I've had that experience. The one, the one thing I think you do is you just got to always sort of sort of step back and go. They're apathetic for for reasons I can't always control. What I can do is, what I what can I control? What I can be enthusiastic about my own subject. I can keep trusting the subject is fundamentally and fundamentally interesting in its own terms. It's not. Don't I would say, as soon as you start saying you're going to need this when you're older or whatever, you I think that's on you're onto a losing track. You don't need to know stuff either to be, uh, again, sometimes teachers fall into the thing of saying, why do I need to know this? And as students start saying that, you just go, well, you need to know it because it's part of understanding the world we live in and let's keep discussing it. And just keep going with the teaching, the explaining, the checking they understand it. And motivation, like I think I said to someone earlier, comes through people feeling good at things. And I think once you start saying, yeah, that's a really good explanation. Well done for that. And that's good. And wow, that's good work. And look what you've done there. The motivation comes through knowing things, explaining things, making sense of things. And I, I feel that that's, that's the biggest lever. If, if people feel they don't know it. But the worst thing you can do is to sort of like let their apathy drag you down into thinking I've got to sort of jazz it up into something. That, there are some other things I think you can do. One of them is to make sure that, that there is a rele relevance in terms of their co concrete experience. So sometimes science can be abstract. Like it's, I remember teaching a topic which was in chemistry, which was to do. It was called colloids and gels, and it was all about the structure of foam and 
like hair gel and stuff. I was thinking, why, why is this on the curriculum? I couldn't really understand it. I still don't really know. But when I went in to teach it, I had to sort of think like, these are these materials that the students can feel and touch. And so you could get some shaving foam out and say, look, isn't this weird material? Look, it's not, it's like a solid, but it's kind of not. And so isn't this weird? So how do we explain why this does this? So you sort of make it real for them right there in front of their eyes and say, so how do we explain why this material does what it does? And you just have to create some sort of engagement through the, a concrete thing that they can see rather than it just being another thing out of a textbook. And I do sometimes feel that science can become dry when it's another sheet, another PowerPoint, another demo. And if it's not hands-on and the students can't see and touch things for themselves, they can get a bit disenchanted. I went on a no. bit there, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. No. Thank you very much for um, taking the time to answer it. No, thank you. I tell you, this is it's something I refer to in my training uh, a lot is uh, one of my favorite lessons I've seen a teacher do, which was uh, a, a year five teacher who got all her kids to have a beaker of water. And they had a, literally a beaker of water. You think, oh, how, how exciting could this be? But literally, she was just saying, right, hold your beaker of water and then tip, tip it up. And can you see? And, and the kids are all going, whoa. <laughs> like they're literally seeing water change shape in a glass and and because they'd never really looked at it like that before the, the, the kids were going whoa look at my water <laughs> you know like she's just making them be interested in something as every day as a glass of water by making them look at it in a different way and saying oh how does it do that and it was just so great like getting them to be interested in something every day it's just it's just the way you set it up and i think that's really there's something to learn from that like sometimes we just forget to just be interested in the stuff which is just right in front of our eyes that's a lovely quote tom well there you go <laughs> there you go um has that answered your question melita yes thank you oh thanks for thank calling in have a lovely you. evening yeah. cheers bye 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 wow we've had we've had free live callers tom how exciting that's um, that is good. So um, I'm going to go to an advert break, give you a li about, I think, get about 55 seconds to have, have okay, a glass good. of water. Um, and then we'll okay. come back. And I just want to um, unpick your, your brain a little bit. We'll talk about interventions, but about pupil premium afterwards as well. That'd be great. Um, let's just hear, hear from our sponsors. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read, write, ink phonics. Floppy's Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, Visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. There you go. That, that was it, Tom. Um, so that obviously those were our wonderful um, Oxford University Press. I did a show um, about their Essential Letters and Sounds programme last week, and it was um, a very a very eye-opening thing, especially for me, because I do have a three-year-old going through phonics at the moment. So um, if you're interested in that, please, please, please um, get on it. So my next question to you, Tom, we, we were just talking um, about interventions, um, and then obviously we had a live caller, and then we, we jumped to talk about science, and I'm loving the 
the fact that you're code switching here with your different questions, you're doing really well. <laughs> um, so for me, there's there is a there's a huge amount of emphasis on pupil premium, which is incredibly important in a school. Um, but there's a lot on staff to have to prove that the students who are pupil premium in their lessons make progress, etc. And how does that or what does that look like? How can you measure that, etc, etc. So just wanted to know a little bit about your opinion when it comes to the whole pupil premium intervention data, etc. within a school. So is that the whole question? I think about, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think people premium is an interesting concept. I mean, basically, it's a funding mechanism. And I feel like it's important to remember it. That's what it is. It's a crude device for saying, you know, how, what, what measures of um, kind of deprivation or need do we have? And people premium is something. But it's, I think it's a mistake to link that immediately to educational issues uh, mm. directly. So, for I mean, and this, this is a sort of a, a, a studied... Um, and, you know, people have commented on this. So I, I think you need to do, do look at learning gaps and, and students who are struggling with learning. And, and, uh, and, and students who have educational needs and, and, some, and, and, and sometimes deprivation it, it takes many forms. So there are students, for example, who receive people premium, they're free school meals, but they're not educationally deprived because the family life is such where they're well supported they get they do all their homework they've got parents who are well educated and and can te- and, and support them and all the rest of it and that and, and i think that's an important as they're immediately making the assumption that someone on pupil premium is educationally deprived i think is an error and whereas there are other students who maybe don't receive people premium because of family circumstances but they're educationally more challenged and so on. So I, I, it's not a one for one. And that sounds, mm. you know, so I, I do think that's important because if you don't make that assumption, you end up with chasing students on pupil premium. I also think this to do with scale. So one of the things I think is important is so I know I'm thinking of that one school I've worked in myself where we, we, where we had, you know, 70% of students on pupil premium so that you couldn't like walk down the corridor with a, a little checklist of my pp kids that i would know no it's like this is the whole school more or less yeah. so you have to think well the, the money goes into a big pot and what do we do with it we we have a we have a, we have a big special needs department we have a behavior support team we have you know money that we give to support extracurricular provision for clubs and societies and stuff and because there are so many students in the school who benefit from that, we can't track every single one of them because it's most of the school. And I, I whereas there are other schools where, you know, that's 5% of the students are on pupil premium because it's a, a totally different context. And in that situation, the, the funding has to be more targeted. So I, th- these are the sorts of issues that come with it. So, <laughs> and then it's like, what does an intervention look like? I do, th- I do, th- I do think you need to th- think about things like opportunities for, you know, extracurricular provision, support for learning, um, and 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 like I said, the, 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 about the intervention is is a good is a good legitimate use of people funding to g- support teacher development so that they teach the core lessons better. Mm. Well, maybe maybe yeah, maybe yeah. You know, maybe it's a good use of money for that. Is it is it appropriate to spend people premium money on? trips for a few students which is a one-off event sometimes you think well 
you have to weigh that up. You think, well, maybe that experience would be life-changing if they're going to a, visit a university or go to a, a work experience thing which they wouldn't otherwise have had and it opens doors for them, sees possibilities. I, I think it's you have to be quite broad-minded about what it can do. But I do think you have to be. It has to be driven by the the actual needs you see in the individual students, rather than the assumption of that they're in a category. Yeah. Therefore, this is what we do for students in that category, and and that's that. It, it's just far too crude. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask you about homework. Um, so, where do you think homework works, and where do you think it doesn't work? If you think it doesn't work. Well, I. I think homework, I, I feel quite strongly about homework. I feel like it's an important part of being a successful student. So mm. if, if, you, if you look at students who do really well at school, who get good GCSE grades, who do who go on to level three programs, whether they're BTECs or A-levels, and they're successful at them, what do those students look like? They do lots of homework. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. It, and it's not necessarily cause and effect directly, but it's definitely part of a learning culture that they are independent learners, which means that they know what to do when they're by themselves and they can and they want to study. And how do we get good at doing that? Well, we don't just rock it up in year 11 and suddenly become good at studying. <laughs> we learn to do it because it's a habit we form. So I think there are lots of things going on with homework. One of them is forming habits that study happens in between lessons. And one of them is it's an opportunity to provide students with guided practice so that they, they there are things that they just re, like practice doing that, to extend the practice time that you is limited in the school day. And the third thing is to give them opportunities to do types of learning which are not possible in the classroom, like extended making, making things, uh, researching things, personal projects, making a video, making a website, preparing a presentation, reading a whole chapter of a book which you haven't got time to do in class, all sorts of things. And so the more you can make the homework diet varied, interesting, supported, then I think it's important. But there are some caveats. So the research around homework suggests that if you've got students who will need help and the help isn't there, it's probably really difficult to set them homework because they're going to go mm. into a situation where they struggle and then there's no help. They'll, that'll affect them. So you need to make sure that students have got the tools they need to just do practice tasks just like we did in class or there's prompts and help or so i think you need to think about the types of tasks you're setting but i i mean i i think some of the best work i've ever seen students do at home on their own yeah has has been stuff they've brought in it yeah. hasn't been stuff they did in a lesson because you're giving them the opportunity to embed that knowledge for themselves, yeah. I think, and then it, you can really see their their interest and their thirst for it. What yeah. about um, the 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 argument of obviously sort of teacher teacher mark marking loads? Because um, the best homework I've I've ever seen. I'm a history teacher. Is when we set history projects. So key stage three. Um, seven, eight, nine, you set them a, a theme and a project and they they do it over a, a course of a series of weeks and you give them lots of guidance, lots of help. You do sort of in 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 school support as well if they don't have the, the materials or the access or the support at home. And then you get the most wonderful things brought to you that you just like, I've had cakes brought in, like really creative. Um, but how do you go about marking it all? Because it can become so overwhelming at times 
for that. So what would your advice be for it? Not to market. <laughs> well, no, I've, well, no I've, I've done this and I've done live marking. So obviously yeah, I, you, I, I you think, take a I photo think... and things. But then I've had parents complain almost because they want they want more recognition from it or feedback. Well, yeah, so I think, I think that's fair. So I think what you need to do is, I mean, I was being facetious there. I, I think the first thing is like for routine homework, for day-to-day homework, mm. it, you, you have to set it up so it doesn't revolve you marking it. So it's all about... Like your routine weekly homework should be self-checkers. So, yeah. You know, it's literally, I mean, I, I worked in a school where the, the, the teachers set tons of homework, like a massive amount of homework. And I thought it was incredible, really, how, how much, how the demands were of students. But a lot of the time it was stuff you bring into class and discuss it in the lesson. And the expectation is that you're doing the homework so that you're ready for the lesson. And then, Right, which ones did you do? How did you get on? Did you get them right? Like, let's share examples. Right, okay, let's look at yours, look at yours. Okay, so who understood this? And it's all part of the, the culture of independent learning. Yeah. It's not about, right, now no, let me collect your books in and I'm going to mark all that stuff you yeah. do at home. Uh, I think maths, maths do that really well as a yeah. subject, yeah. So, so you have to create things which are verifiable. If it's a it's writing task, it's harder. So you have to sort of have some peer assessment and so on. But then occasionally, of course, then you do have to do some marking. And if you've set a, 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 a long multi-week history project, which is high value in the, in the year, then sure, you probably need to give students some feedback. But I, 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 it depends how you do it. So I, I've, done, I've done things like, um, you know, you take a lesson to do the feedback and you, you get everyone to sort of set out their work and, in front of them and, while people are doing something else, you go around and you look at the work in the lesson and say, that was great, well done, that's good, lovely, that, love this, awesome, well done, that's amazing, brilliant, well done. And you just literally verbally big them all up. And I've done that, and the validation is is one-to-one. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like there are lots of ways you, you can do stuff which doesn't involve you having to write all over it. And this, what the students need is validation and recognition for having made the effort. But it's so important with homework that you don't create the, the culture that the reason for doing it is to get the teacher's approval. It's it's for the value of doing it itself. Yeah. And, and that sounds, as, and that's, you know, that's easier said than done maybe, but I do think it's important. I have some, I've been there myself thinking, what have I done? I set up this horrible thing where unless I write all over this work, the student doesn't think it matters, but, I haven't got time to do this 25 times. So things like success criteria sheets, you know, so you some quick things like, and you set it up in advance. So if this work has been done really well, it will have this, 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 and this. And then you can quickly just tick off to whether those things have been done or all that kind of thing. So you make the marking quick and easy to do um, rather than a, a, a personally crafted comment, of, you know, on every single piece. Yeah, and that 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 goes with with all marking as well. There's 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 really quick easy wins for for all different marking in schools, isn't there? So yeah, but I think the point the point that you made that homework's not not for the teacher recognition. It's it's for them, isn't it? Yeah, and that's that's a fantastic thing to take away. But again, I think I mean some of the some of the most lovely work I've I've had from students is when uh, one of the things that I I sort of I've written a bit about, but. Um, that I'm a fan of is occasional open response homework. So what that means is that, say, once a once a unit or once a term, say, 
it depends on what your subject is, but you would say, okay, guys, we've done all this work. Like, I want you to summarize the unit in some way, which would help you communicate that, what you've learned to somebody else. Like, so sum it up. And you can do that in any way you like. I just want to get something which says, wow, look at what we've done. And this is what I know. And, and students, you're going to say, students can do a, a, a video, a PowerPoint. A, and some of the, some, I've, I've had amazing things. Like students have made lovely booklets. They've made little fold-out booklets. They've made a, a video, a YouTube video. Of, mm. I remember one girl, she did this incredible video explaining a natural selection and art versus uh, selective breed, artificial selection for dogs was one of them. And she did, she did this brilliant like YouTube piece to camera like she was a Blue Peter presenter. <laughs> and it was wonderful. We watched it in class. I didn't mark it. We just watched it and went, wow, amazing. That's brilliant. And that kind of thing. And it was valuable to her. She felt really good about it. Yeah. Um, some of the other students made a website. You know, they literally made a website about in art. We did some, I did, taught RE for a while. They made a website. And again, I don't remember marking their website. I just was blown away by what they made. And we watched it, we browsed it, and we shared it on a link. And these were the year sevens. You know, they, it was, it's this feeling of like, show me what you can do. Dazzle me, impress me, do something yeah. amazing. And that, every so often, in, you know, they might do 10 practice homeworks, which you've got in their book, and then they do this dazzle me type open-ended project. And it just, it just livens up the life of a classroom. Do I mark all those things? No. <laughs> I just, what, what about I, I the just ones, celebrate them. What about the students that didn't do the homework? I don't remember them. I mean, you do? <laughs> and I, I, think oh, you? <laughs> I think it's important that, like, I, okay, so what with students who don't do the homework, yeah, I notice. And then second, third time, I think, okay, this is an issue. I phone yeah. my parents. I say, Michael's not doing his homework. What's happening? Here it is. Look, I set it every week. I'm absolutely religious about sending homework. I, w- I was someone as a teacher. I would, I would have just been mortified if I ever missed setting a homework. For me, that mm. was like one of the most important things. I'm never going to be one of those teachers that doesn't give you something to do to continue your study. And that's a point of pride for me. So, yeah, here's the homework. What's happening if you're not doing it? And when you come to my lesson, you haven't done it. I, yeah, you know I notice it. And because partly is I'm expected to share your homework to me in the lesson. Michael, what, where's your example? Oh, you haven't done it. Well, that's not very good, is it? So why not? And yeah. this and this all goes completely back to you setting those high expectations yeah. as well. And yeah. So so Michael feels super awkward. It's like the biggest punishment is he just feels a bit crappy by lesson because yeah. he feels like, blimey, everyone's doing the homework and and the teacher's expecting me and he knows I can do it. He's given me everything I need and sort your life out, Michael. Next lesson <laughs> expected to be done. So that's what I do. But then when it's the big project, I'm not going to waste my time chasing students, sort of copying some rubbish in the dinner hall to impress me. I don't want that. I just want to be dazzled by beautiful work and celebrate all that and all the lovely children who did all their work. And the students who didn't do that, I just think, well, you've missed out on something there. And to some extent, you need to feel that as something you've lost. And when you could have done it, and I'm not, I've only so far I'm going to go. And, I, and what I'm not going to do is give you the feeling that you're doing it for me. You're not. You're doing it for yourself. Yeah. But I need to make sure that you can learn from the process. And, and I do sometimes think of people get stuck on this. Like, to some extent, you have to set out opportunities for students and you have to give them some responsibility. And part of giving students responsibility is trusting them 
with that and saying, that means that I'm allowing you to fail slightly. And it is, you're sort of saying, that risk there is that for this particular task, if you choose not to do it, that is a choice that is there. And I'm not here to nurse maid you through school. I'm here to give you, to be demanding of you. You can be demanding of me. And that's the deal. And if you choose to opt out of that, to some extent, you have to face the consequence of that, which is you learn less and you have to feel responsible for that. And I do think that's part of the, the, the trade-off. And you create that culture in the class, which is, has, yeah, a, kind of, has a kind yeah. of edge to it. So it's all about you creating that homework culture. Yeah. Um, and Portia has just texted in and said, for art, it's developing the practice of making art and investing in that each week. Yeah, totally. And I feel like art students, I mean, my daughter did GCSE art. I mean, her, she, she was like, had her face in her sketchbook constantly. And um, it's part of a whole journey. You can't just, I think with art, one of the challenges there is that you can't sort of catch that up very easily. Um, so you do need to embed that in early on because it's so hard to sort of have a, sort of a you know, six months worth of dodgy portfolio uh, <laughs> to catch up on. You have to sort of just build it in early on. So you've got yeah. to really build that culture of celebrating what people are doing and, and showing each other what all the other students have made. And look, this is what a really good uh, art portfolio kind of sketchbook kind of feels like week in, week out. And if you're not putting the time in, it, you're going to find this harder. So, yeah, so I, I, I yeah, there's, there's a lot packed into that. Of course, it depends on the context. But I, I do feel like when what's, what I think sometimes teachers do is they think, Homework is imperfect. Some students don't do it. And so it demotivates them and they stop setting it for anybody. Yeah. And I just think, no, if there's a student in my class who's going to do everything I ask and and um, I'm going to make sure that they are never held back because some other children in their class don't do stuff. That, that can never be the right thing. Exactly. And I think, as, we, as we've sort of discussed earlier on in the show, that that positive framing that that mentality in the classroom has such a big impact as well um i'm gonna ask one more question then we're gonna go to another ad break and then we've only got about sort of 15 minutes left of the show and i've i've literally got pages of questions so we might have to do a round two at some point tom um so my my next question too obviously you you in a lot of the books that you write um and we've had um your rosenshine obviously most recently you, you're doing your walkthroughs at the moment um do you have anything um, that you're working on at the moment that you can share? Um, and my second part of that is for lots of people out there, you're our go-to, you're our sort of, like I was saying at the beginning, the person that I go to if I'm a little bit, um, I, need, I need a bit more clarification around something or I want to develop something else. Who's your then go-to in the educational world? <laughs> Who's my go-to? Um well, I suppose, you know, the people that I, I've, I've, I've mentioned them already, I suppose, in terms of books to read and so on, I, I think for for thinking about, um, I, I, I think people like Dan, Dan Willingham yeah. and uh, Doug Lamov, I think they, they're, they're fantastic about, about their, in their areas, Dylan and Dylan William. Yeah. I think, and there are other people who I think are, are brilliant on, uh, you know, cur curriculum thinking. There are lots of people that I, I really rate. Um, so, it, and it depends on, on the specific area of the curriculum. So it, it could be someone like um, Claire Seeley or 
um, John Hutchinson in in mm -hmm. in, in uh, well primary and secondary talking about curriculum thinking. It could be someone like um, Benny Cara, who, who's brilliant on, on talking about things like uh, diversity issues and mm -hmm. uh, and and so on. And there, there, there are so many different things. Um, Mary Meyer uh, and John Thompson, who people I do a lot of work with, but they're superb yeah. on, on curriculum and, and general leadership and so on and so on. So there are lots of different niche areas. Uh, Alex Quigley is just fantastic on things to do with reading and yeah. um, and, and and writing. But yeah, so I mean, I could keep going on, but there's, there's lots of there are lots of spe specific people. Just give me loads and loads of names Pe for Peps to McCray. contact the show. Peps oh McCray yes, is, I've, I mean, I've he's, contacted he's, him. He's absolutely yeah. inspiring. He is, so, and, then, and then you get to subject specific people. Like I think, and I, I did a tweet about this recently because I was thinking about this. Like when you go to schools and you hear, like for example, you go to a maths department, someone like Craig Barton. Yeah, his influence on maths teaching. But there are other people like Mark McCourt um, is another person. But I think Craig, for example, his his um, diagnostic questions or uh, SSDD website, you know, is massively influential. And you think, how amazing to have created a, a kind of name for yourself, like in maths education, through just supplying incredible resources to people, yeah. uh, you know, for free over many years. It's absolutely epic and. But then, you know, and I and I think that's really exciting. Christine Council is, you know, fantastic for history teachers, but also oh, just yes. generally. We like she's Christine one, a lot. She, she's yes. one of the most quoted people because she's got this sort of intellectual rigor around concepts to do with curriculum. Yeah. And then link, link to history, but then you learn from that. And I do think it's fantastic when people have sort of managed to kind of promote ideas to the point where they're kind of associated with them and you know there are there are lots of people who have influenced me in that in that way through thinking about about teaching or, or made you think hard about about uh, something which you know in a way you hadn't done before do you do you sometimes step back and think well oh, look 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 like I was a science teacher I was a head teacher and now I get to go go around schools and come on radio shows. Um, do you sometimes think, "Wow, how did that happen?" <laughs> or you know, I do a bit. I mean, it's a bit of a weird one. I mean, I feel like Twitter and 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 blogging. It, it's 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 crazy how that's kicked off. You know, it started for me in about twenty twelve. Yeah. Where you know, I started writing a blog just because I was actually doing it because I was getting students to do blogging and. I thought, well, I need to work out how to do a WordPress site so that I can teach them how to do it. So I. I thought I'd have a go, and then, it, it, you know, you don't really expect these things to go anywhere. But then, you know, you write a book, and you don't really expect anyone to read it. And then, if they do, it's a bit of a bonus. But then it's that type of feeling. It's it's always that feeling, like you know, blimey, <laughs> I feel I feel lucky that people have found this sort of stuff interesting, and 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 it, it's picked up. I think what well, I said at the beginning, it's so relatable, and it's it's all things within within the classroom. Everything we've spoken about this evening. It's is exactly what what every teacher does day in day out, and and that's that's why I think it's such a success personally. Um, is is because it's so accessible to us within within classroom practice. Well, I feel like is, there are various reasons for that. Like I'm very grounded by the fact that, and I do I did teach for myself for a very long time, and even even when I was the head teacher, and I was teaching. Oh, well done! Yeah, I think my last ever lesson in a set in a, of my own class was a, a bottom set year ten class that I had. Which actually is probably one of those difficult teaching things I've ever done. It was a really difficult 
behavior management situation, even though I was the head, I found it hard. And I'll be honest about that. And their learning needs were very challenging in terms of understanding maths. So there's lots of reasons why I found it difficult. And that was a constantly interesting and challenging and, and, yeah, how do I run a room? How do I get them to to do, you know, indices when they don't seem to be able to remember it from one day to the next? So these things, it's, but I'm also like, you know, I'm married to somebody who is a deputy head of a secondary school and is there, is doing that job every day. Um, and so, we you know, we have lots of conversations about the reality of it. So yeah, if I wasn't grounded by people I talked to and, and also visiting lessons, so like today I've been in the school uh, talking to, to, to curriculum leaders and about curriculum design and you, know, you, I, le- you just learn so much from other, yeah, other exactly. schools and people so I, don't I, you I, yeah. I'm in schools all the time um, I meet hundreds of teachers and I feel like just I, well, that's what I love about teaching is that it's something which goes on everywhere like there's, there's hundreds there's thousands of schools hundreds of thousands of teachers and some of the, so many of the issues that we have we share so we have this there's a community yeah. So, so Twitter is brilliant for that. This community of people, and I, I feel that that it, it, it becomes to to mean something to you that you're part of something bigger than just your immediate bubble. And it's um, never going to go away, is it? It's no. uh, it's always going to be there. Um, no, I, I agree, and I think there's there's it's very helpful as well. I think Twitter and also just just the educational world. If if you're if you need a question, you need you need to ask anything. There's always somebody out there, generally willing to do it for free as well, which I think is absolutely amazing. You wouldn't get that, you know, if you're if you're in law and you're asking for expert help. If you're in, you know, all these other professions, you don't get the level of free CBD that is offered by teachers out there today. Well, yeah, I do think. I mean, I mean, I have to say that I I do a lot of things where. Um... I don't do it for free. <laughs> no, I won't. Well, you do this for free. <laughs> well, exactly. So, but it, it's in the mix, isn't it? So there's a sort of thing where you kind of, you know, and I and I do think there is a, a point where you think, well, you have to be careful about that aspect of it. But I've, there is a kind of value you place on things. One of the things I, I've enjoyed doing in the last two years is setting up uh, masterclasses as events where, mm. uh, you know, and people... I don't know. I feel. I feel like it's 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 good value for for schools because you get like a access to like several hours of very you know in, intense thinking because a masterclass is like seventy minutes plus questions. It's quite detailed, and then you can you've got recordings. And I'm not trying to sell these, but I just think I, I listen to them more. I mean, I, I I host them, but then I listen to them. I just my mind is blown every time. I think, wow, it's so interesting what the people are saying. And I know, yeah. And there's, this is expert knowledge. And, you know, we charge uh, an amount of money, which is fairly low money for a school, for, for, for given that every single teacher could look at it. But it's the people who are doing the masterclasses can then be paid for that hour or, or hour and a half. And I think that's fair because you feel like they've put their, it's not just the time, it's the, it's the expertise that they're bringing to that. But you're right. I mean, there's other things where people, I mean, someone like Adam Boxer the other day, like I've written these, epically good booklets for everything you need to know about science and here it is have it for free it's like wow that's just absolutely extraordinary you know i think i think high high quality cpd is is everything for a teacher that's 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 the heart of it all really and if we don't get that quite right for our us personally it, it could be very difficult to to progress within within what you're doing um 
So yeah, there is definitely a lot out there. I think um, I'm still going to go to an advert one more time. When I come back, I'm going to ask you one final question, and then that that will probably be it for, be it for today, Tom. So cool, let's just go just, go just go to the adverts, ha- have a drink. Uh, you done very well. Thank you so much, and I'll speak to you in about one minute. Okay. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Okay, um, so my final question to you, Tom, and I feel like I've had the absolute privilege just to talk to you for an hour and a half this evening, you know, anything and everything to do with teaching. And thank you so much to those um, who've called in as well. I think that that definitely made the show and gave it a little bit of individuality. Um, So my final question is, if you had to choose only three characteristics of what makes great teaching what would they be <laughs> well i just put you on this but you didn't want to know what my questions were before so <laughs> three characteristics of great teaching um okay <laughs> uh, it, it might not I, be possible no no well i i think you know when i work, watch lessons and i'm thinking is this a great teacher well what's happening that's great i i feel there's i i, I think there's a certain sense of of drive I, I, that's a key factor like is a sense of energy and drive a sense you know this is we're on a mission that communicating that sense i think that's one thing it's not just sort of plodding along it, there's a kind of energy there like it matters we, mm. we, we need it you know that kind of thing i think then the second one is you call, i call it either agility or responsiveness where mm-hmm. teachers are not just delivering the stuff they are listening to the way students are engaging with this material and and then adapting their teaching in the moment according to how well students or what students say so it's that it's interactive yeah and and i suppose the the third thing is then um it's something to do with knowledge of of the of the material which is, is is beyond just knowing the subject, but knowing how to explain the subject. So the, the capacity to explain well. So a really good teacher can kind of almost ace something by just the clarity of their exposition and making something complex seem simple, accessible, meaningful. It's that kind of communication. Mm. So uh, that's not very neat way of explaining it. But those, no, it's wonderful. If you, so you, said, anything, you said energy stroke drive that's that's one yeah. uh, the agility or you know responsiveness to live teaching to what's what's going on in front yeah. of them um, and then the the absolute core which is the knowledge for a secondary school teacher well for and for a primary school teacher yeah. like knowing for example how to you know how, how to build students understanding of number mm-hmm. using vis- physical resources in a primary context you know that type of thing it, it uh, all the way through you know um if you watch an early years setting, knowledge of 
how long is too long or, or too short for students to be doing the same activity before you think, come on, let's see if you can do something else or how well, to, how, how far to push them with the verbal communication skills while they're doing an activity, all sorts of, all, all that kind of thing is so found, so, so foundational and you can push and drive with that as well. And I, so I don't think those things are specific to secondary. And uh, yeah, uh, the, if you put those things together, you've you've got it's all. Well, you've, got, you've got your next book there, Tom. Got your yeah. next book. There you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm free yeah. if you want. If you want some help, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I'm joking. Um, so, um, do you go into primary schools often? All the time. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. As as often as I go into secondary school. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I see lots of primary lessons, and uh, I've actually it's one of the things I th- I suppose I've 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 developed to be never having been a primary teacher i've actually you know i i I get kind of accept i'm quite pleased i get accepted into the primary world um (laughs) because you know i've learned to see things and and i've seen enough different different types of practice in primary to be able to sort of evaluate what i'm seeing and talk to people about the curriculum and so on I, i found that incredibly interesting I, I find it so interesting to be able to see where it all starts, right yeah. from preschool to the phonics to the, and then you work your way up year six. I'd like for me, it's just I feel so privileged to be able to go into a primary school and be able to see what that looks like, and, and then follow it into a secondary school. Because obviously, in the role that I'm doing at the moment, I get to go into different schools and different settings and primary as well. And I just think that it just it opens my mind more to what what needs to be done perhaps in the secondary setting because I know where where they're coming from in the primary setting so it's really helped me yeah I, I think it's so it's I think there's lots of aspects of primary practice where you know that the, there's a sort of holistic aspect of teaching the, the students for a lot of the week and then weaving together their knowledge in say writing where you do it through through, through you know dedicated lessons but then applying that when you're talking about the foundation subjects and that holistic kind of overview is something you kind of don't have in secondary uh, and nobody or no one person has. And I think there's something about that. Mm. But there's also just even just the disciplines that the real sort of hard end knowledge of how to teach students to read. I know. And, and it's write. so difficult. <laughs> year, year one is like uh, yeah. the rate of progress children make like literally day to day in the, in year one. Um, if you compare, say, the end of year, like the summer, the summer term in a reception class, and then the September of the year two, you think, whoa, <laughs> you know, what happens in that, you know, that year to 18 months is just absolutely wildfire. And in, in, there's a lot of capacity then for that to be amazing or less amazing. So year one teachers need to be so on it with picking children up when they're, you know, it's, it's, I think it's amazing. So you, there's a lot of respect you have to have for people who do that. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a real skill to, bringing children who are progressing at different rates forward the whole time through key stage one. I think it's, it's really interesting. Absolutely. Um, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so, so much for coming to talk to me for, for an hour and a half. We did. We did really yeah. well. No, well done we, to you. It's enjoyable. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Um, and if you ever wanted to come back on perhaps after Easter or something for round two, then that would be amazing as well. Sure. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, brilliant. Well, have a lovely evening um, and, and be in contact soon. Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks so much, Tom. Bye bye.
Um, brilliant. What an absolutely, well, for me, a wonderful show. Um, and as I said, what a privilege to be able to speak to Tom for, for an hour and a half as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to leave it there. But just quickly, next week, I've got Matt O'Leary joining me. And we're going to be talking about different lesson observation um, and teaching and learning and what, what that is like within different schools. And he's he's an absolute expert on that um, so if you have an example of what your lesson observation cycle is like within your school absolutely be fantastic to hear from you um, so have a wonderful evening and fantastic um, thank you so much for those that rang in live as well that that really made the show really unique for me um, and I will see you next week well, I won't see you I will speak to you next week bye bye You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.